Another pot of coffee is brewing and my third cup is almost finished. I am so done with the whole no caffeine thing. Now I'm just gonna try and reduce my dairy. Anyone else noticed that coconut milk splits in their coffee? I noticed that this morning. Not the most appetizing sight. So that means it's time for another episode of Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, TV show marathoner, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. This week, I am actually not looking at a TV show, though next week may well feature a fallen angel if anyone's been looking at their Netflix schedules recently. I am going to be looking at a Disney Channel original movie. It's musically based, does not star Zac Efron, and oh my god, the hair. That's all I can say, the hair. Yes, this week I am taking you all back to 2008, and you'd better pack your guitar, autograph book, and a camera as we're heading off to music camp. No, we're not going with Michelle and her band geeks, and there won't be weird things happening with a flute. We're going to Camp Rock, where everything is about rock songs that aren't rock and haircuts that I doubt were ever really in fashion. At the very beginning of the film, we're introduced to Michi Torres, who, in case you couldn't tell from the title of the film, lives her life through music. She starts her day pretending to play a keyboard, guitar, sing into a hairbrush and do bizarre dance routines to a song that sounds like it could have been written for Avril Lavigne pre-2003. And then she does her best to persuade her parents, neither of whom are rolling in money, to spend a lot on sending her to this apparently respected music camp where she'll get the chance to make a name for herself and perhaps get a career in the music world. Not to stomp on anyone's dreams or anything here, but if everyone were famous, then no one would be. Unfortunately, as she later tells her only friend at school, a character so important that she's on screen for a matter of minutes so Mitchie can moan about the fact that her parents won't spend money on sending her to Camp Rock, there is no money for camp. But of course, this wouldn't be a Disney Channel original if her mum didn't find a way to get her to this camp that the spoilt brat so desperately wants. And so she signed off her entire summer to serve as kitchen staff at Camp Rock so that they get a discounted enrolment rate. Oh, I do have to mention here that Mitchie's mother is played by Maria Canals Barrera, who also plays Teresa Russo in The Wizards of Waverly Place, which I probably will get round to at some point, because since it appeared on Disney Plus last year, I have watched the entire run and the movies twice. Yeah, let's not talk about that. Cue scenes of kids playing the drums on the side of a bus, doing dance routines in the middle of the street, and generally doing a bad impression of Alan Parker's 1980 version of Fame. We also have the classic scene of one camp attendee arriving in a stretch limo. Oh look, it's Bianca Stratford from ABC's 10 Things I Hate About You TV series. You just know that she is going to be the camp queen bee. While all of this has been going on, we've also been getting glimpses of a group called Connect 3, played by the Jonas Brothers. It turns out that Shane Gray, played by Joe Jonas, you know, the one married to Sansa Stark, 
is a bit of a troublemaker and the rest of his band and his management team have decided that as punishment he's going to spend the whole of his summer playing guest lecturer at Camp Rock, which happens to be owned and run by his uncle Brown. And this is meant to be punishment, apparently. I know that it's probably meant to be funny, but Jason, his older brother, played by his actual older brother, Kevin, keeps on asking him to build a birdhouse. And it's a running joke through the entire 99 minutes of the film. But it doesn't make any sense. He's been to the camp. It's where they made their name, where they got their start in show business. So he knows it's all about music. Anyway, this is the level it's dragged down to throughout. Everyone at camp knows that they are going to be getting a famous guest lecturer for the summer, so they do their absolute best to get his attention. But on his first night, when he's running away from the marauding crowds that are desperately clamouring at his heels to get his autograph for a moment of his time, Shane hears Mitchie, though he's not aware it's her, And she's not aware that she has an audience as she's performing in the rec room come dining room. And he's enthralled. Yeah, colour me shocked. So we know what he's going to be doing for the entirety of the summer. He's going to be searching for the mystery girl with the amazing voice and the wonderful song. Though Mitchie should be incredibly grateful to her mum for doing everything she can to ensure that her overindulged daughter gets exactly what she wants. You just know that she's going to do something that will end up hurting a lot of people. On arriving at the camp, Mitchie meets Caitlin, who apparently wants to be a music mixer or something like that. I thought mixer was the board. But anyway, she's played by Alison Stoner, who I am far more familiar with because she was in Cheaper by the Dozen. Anyway, no sooner have they bonded than Mitchie starts the lies telling everyone that her mother is very influential in the music business. So, of course, Miss Rich, the spoiled girl that arrived earlier in the limo, also known as Tess Tyler, the daughter of a famous pop singer called TJ Tyler, who spends more time touring than with her kid, immediately asks Mitchie to join her little gang of followers. And that's exactly what they are, because no one can outshine Tess Tyler. Everyone has to be her backup and never ever do anything that's going to get them into the spotlight. Every single night at Camp Rock, there is another opportunity for the kids to perform on stage. On her first night, also known as the first jam, Mitchie proves that she has stage fright, which makes her perfect to be a backup singer for Tess. Though, as we see later on, she doesn't like that either, as though she realises that she's never going to get anywhere being a doormat. Mitchie's lie firmly established, she now has to hide the fact that she's actually helping her mother in the kitchen every morning, preparing the food that she then goes out to eat. She has flour on her face on one occasion, and it's suddenly some newfangled exclusive treatment she picked up in China, where she spends so much time with her high-flyer mother, and she talks about this amazing life she lives. Every single word out of her mouth is a blatant lie that if her mother found out would probably either devastate her, given everything she's given up for her daughter, or lead to Mitchie being punished when they get home, with a severe grounding, no doubt. It appears that Shane has been acting up because he doesn't like the fact that the record company makes him and the rest of the band produce and perform cookie-cutter music. 
Seriously, has he actually heard the other songs in this film? Does he think that they're anything but cookie cutter? Believing that Mitchie understands what it's like living up to someone else's expectations, he opens his heart and bares his soul to her, not realising that in reality she doesn't have a clue. I know that I'm meant to, well, maybe I'm not meant to, but I know that the audience is meant to identify with Mitchie. She's the lead protagonist, and I'm meant to be sitting there supporting her and everything she does. But she's actually not that nice a person. She lies to get in with a group of people who are cruel and spiteful, and ditches the girl who wanted to be her friend at the beginning before she started spouting all the lies. Of course, there's the turnaround at the end, because there always is, but as far as I'm concerned, one nice act doesn't make everything else she does acceptable. The girls all get in trouble when Caitlin and Tess get into a food fight and this leads to Caitlin having to help Mitchie and her mum in the kitchens. Of course, at this point, Caitlin is still under the impression that Mitchie's mum is a music bigwig at Hot Tunes TV China. But being a nice person who doesn't want to get involved in all the rubbish going on around her and despite having the opportunity to show Mitchie for who she really is to everyone at camp, she decides to keep her secret when she discovers the truth. Somehow, of course, Tess discovers Mitchie's secret, but instead of saying something immediately, she waits until it's going to have the greatest impact on Mitchie's life. So she waits until the night of yet another camp rock jam session. There are lots of them. I count at least four so far. And then in front of everyone tells them all that Mitchie has been lying to the whole camp that her mother is none other than the woman who has been making their food the whole summer. Shane, feeling betrayed because he thought Mitchie, A, understood him, and B, was being honest with him, tells her pretty much the same thing, though in a more convoluted way, and storms off. Tess, believing that she has won and has cowed enough people at camp that they're going to just let her walk away with the grand prize, which apparently this year is recording a song with Connect 3, again, who seriously comes up with these names, continues to treat her loyal friends, Peggy and Ella, like they are so much garbage. But finally, as it has to in this kind of film, the worm does turn. It's not all over, though because Tess has a plan. She's going to ensure that Mitchie is never able to perform in the final jam, because she's also discovered that though Shane and Mitchie are not aware of it, he's looking for her. And she knows that Mitchie wrote the song that he really can't get out of his head. She plants a bracelet in Mitchie's belongings and reports it as stolen. Of course, it's found exactly where Tess knew it to be, and Mitchie is banned from performing at the final jam until after the final performance. The minute the guy who runs the camp stressed after the final performance, something he did at least three times in one conversation, I knew he was giving both Mitchie and Caitlin an out clause. Can you guess what it is? Because it didn't take me long, but then I am an adult. Also, I do have to say here that because this guy's English accent was so bad, I spent most of the film believing he was faking it. James Masters, when he played Spike, did a much better job of a fake accent in Buffy. Apparently, though, the actor who plays Brown is called Daniel Fathers and he was born and bred in London. 
Though looking at his credits, he has spent most of his career in the US. So perhaps it's just the fact that there are so many American accents around him and it wasn't his normal accent that makes it sound really odd. But at the same time, it just really grated on my nerves because it was a bad accent. Anyway, the night of the final jam arrives. Tess's two cohorts tell her to sling her hook. So she is left to perform alone. And somehow the two girls... Peggy and Ella managed to actually get places in another group's act, even though they haven't rehearsed it at all. They seem to know the dance routine and the song very well for people who haven't seen it before. Then Tess is on stage performing a song called Look At Me. You just know she is singing to her mum, the performer who has just shown up on the night and is paying attention to everything but her daughter, who is so desperate to get some sign her mum actually gives a toss that she's willing to treat everyone else like crap. The final act comes on stage and it's an unexpected one. It's Peggy, one of Tess's cohorts, her underlings. And it turns out that she's actually got a really good voice and is incredibly talented. After the final act has been performed, however, it's open season. Mitchie shows up on stage and with her back to the audience, stage fright, don't you know, performs the song that Shane heard however many years ago this film happened to start because at this point it felt like a very long time. We get a standing ovation after Shane rushes to the stage and starts singing Mitchie's totally original song with her, so what non-existent rehearsals was he stalking? Anyway, the winner is announced and it's not Mitchy. It turns out that the very talented Peggy and her performance rightly won her the prize of recording with Connect 3. Though, to be honest, I think she'd do pretty well without them. As the credits roll, we get a very well-rehearsed dance routine and I have rarely felt so relieved that a film is over. There are so many moments in this film where you can sense that tropes are going to be used and you know which ones they're going to be. I called the lie to make people like you one as soon as Tess Tyler appeared in her limo, as well as the the lie will be exposed in a very public way one because where one starts, the other has to follow. Then there's the make an enemy out of the camp bitch one, I also called the Celeb is Fascinated with Mystery Voice one because without that it would be a very short film. Then of course we get the classic, Make an Enemy of Someone at Camp. But that doesn't come until much later and it's so obvious that you could probably put a timer on it. I have to be honest, I have watched a very large number of the Disney Channel original movies and though some of the older ones could be considered just a little bit cringeworthy, can anyone say smart house here? There is usually at least one character in them that I can look at and say, yep, that character was good. Or perhaps that storyline wasn't so ridiculous. I wish that I could say that about Camp Rock, but the whole plot was bordering on daft. There's not a single song that I can honestly say I recall with any accuracy. And as I typed the script, I was humming Breaking Free from High School Musical because that's just the way I roll after a glass of wine at 4.30 on a Sunday afternoon. 
The acting made me uncomfortable. The characters were insipid, shallow, and in many cases just cringeworthy. And I wanted to tell Mitchie that no, she wasn't going to camp, full stop, because I honestly felt that her parents were indulging her frankly irritating behaviour. And as for the forced smile, I really couldn't help but wonder if someone was holding a gun to Demi Lovato's back and forcing them to beam for the camera whenever that massive gurn was on screen. I'm not saying it to be mean, I'm really not. But given what we know about their Disney history, it really wouldn't surprise me if, at a later date, we heard more about the awful life on the set of the Camp Rock movies. I had to do a bit of research into the film to see what inspired such insipid twaddle. And it turns out the director who worked on it hasn't worked since. Now, perhaps it's because he's retired, because no doubt he can afford to. But Matthew Diamond, who previously worked on projects such as The Gilmore Girls, Two Guys, A Girls and A Pizza Place, which I absolutely love, and My Two Dads, which I haven't seen since the 80s, has no credits on his resume after Camp Rock. Not even the sequel. The film itself has a rather big cast list of dancers and singers and old faithfuls like Julie Brown, but most of them are a blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment as the story focuses, as it rightly should really, on Mitchie, Shane and Tess. The film was something of a hit with Disney audiences, but that's unsurprising when you put together actors from the popular shows on the channel plus music. It spawned merchandise, a Billboard Top 10 soundtrack album, and of course the sequel, which was released in 2010. But more importantly, if this is what the Disney Channel can do in a month, think about what they can do if they spend a month a month or two more on something. Just in case you haven't checked any of the podcatchers in the last week, a brand new episode of The Bookshop was released on Monday, And it's all about Andy Weir's novel, The Martian. It's available for download now. So we've come to the question and answer part of the episode. Really, let me know if there are any questions you would like to hear me answer about the shows and the films that I watch. Or if there's a show that you'd love to hear me talk about. Here goes. (laughs) Did I enjoy it? Uh, No. I know that I have said this before about films like Smart House especially, but this film had a weak storyline, abysmal character development and incredibly forgettable tunes. It's been less than a week and I can't remember one of them. As a film that was meant to focus on the music, I honestly expected a lot more from the soundtrack. But those 99 minutes felt like an absolute eternity and the songs were forgettable. Had it not been for a glass of wine and a bag of Maltesers, I would probably have switched it off after about 15 minutes rather than forced myself to sit through the entire torturous 99. Would I watch more? There is a sequel, Camp Rock, The Final Jam, but it's not piqued my interest, unsurprisingly, and given the fact that the same cast makes a second appearance, it's highly unlikely to. The fact that this film managed to make an entire cast feel unlikable and unappealing is both a huge surprise and a massive disappointment. It's also rather shocking. The first film in this duology goes on the never again thank you very much pile, while the sequel goes on the would anyone really inflict this movie on me list. 
So, how are things in the coffee household this week? What can I say here? Yes, I have just taken a few weeks off, unplanned, due to personal issues. It feels strange to be saying that my brain just shut down for a few weeks. I was able to do the work that was on my roster, but I really couldn't stretch to anything else as much as I wanted to, and I really did. I had planned to release The Martian way back in August, but my concentration went and I knew that if I pushed myself, I was only going to be half-arsing it, and that's not fair on you or me. I want to make these episodes fun and funny, not all, oh, woe is me and excuse me while I sob. And that is me taking the mick out of myself, trust me. Anyway, so much has happened in the last few weeks that if I hadn't been living it, I probably wouldn't believe it myself. At the beginning of August, I started a serious search for a new job. Money, personal situation and a few other events that I will go into at a later date prompted me to start thinking that it was time to make some positive changes in my life. Lorraine from Once Upon a Nightmare, awesome podcast, go and listen to it. And I joked that by October, we could both be starting new jobs. And it was just that, for me at least, a joke. Fast forward to the third week of August, and I'm still looking. I've been to long interviews, short interviews, done so many acuity tests that I have lost count. But nothing has shown up on the radar as anything more than I'll accept it if nothing else comes up. Also, employers are back to their, we'll interview you, but when you're not successful, we're not even going to send you an email saying thank you. Game. Yay. Which really pisses me off. If I take the time out of my lunch break or evening to interview, the least you can do is send me an email to let me know that it was a no-go. So, where was I before I got distracted? Oh yes, last week. I had done an interview and been told I'd made it through to round two, where I had to put together a presentation showing what I would do as a Christmas campaign to boost website traffic. This included social examples of social media posts, a brief blog post, and also any research that I put into it. This is me. I put a lot of research into everything. I worried and stressed for a couple of days about how I was going to write it and what I was going to write. And then the idea came to me. And after a few hours, the entire campaign was down on paper, ready to be presented at my second interview. Long story long, after applying for more than 30 jobs, seriously, getting rejection upon rejection, it all seriously affected my confidence, which had already been hit quite badly with the situation I was already experiencing. I promise I will be going into this at a later date, but it is still quite raw. Something I know is the same for everyone. Finally, I got offered a job and last week, for the first time since 1996, I sent a resignation letter. The last time I resigned from a job, I was going to university and they knew months before I handed them the slightly wrinkled handwritten letter that it was coming. This time it was over email and I have never been so nervous. I felt sick, anxious and everything else that goes with it, but I knew that I had done the right thing. A change is as good as a rest and this change is the best thing that could have happened. Right now, I am debating as to whether I'm going to take a few extra days off before my new job starts. Actually, that's not true. I'm waiting for my manager to approve the few days I've requested to take off before my new job starts. 
but ultimately this is the best decision I have made. I had a few doubts. Was I making a rash decision? Have I leapt out of the frying pan and into the fire? So many idioms made themselves known at the same time, and I wasn't the only one thinking them, as my mum made a point of asking me if I was sure I was making the best decision. Was I deciding too quickly? Even though she has been listening to my worries for the last few months. Well, maybe listening is a little assumptive of me. I should probably say I've been telling her my worries for the last few months. I'm not sure how much has actually been absorbed. But with the way I have been feeling, the anxiety, the exhaustion, the low moods, the chronic stomach reaction that has made working so difficult, it's been a relief that I'm based at home, I know that I have done the best thing for my health. The funny thing is that the bit that made me most anxious was what my manager was going to say. It took her over two hours to get back to me and all she really wanted to know was why I didn't go to her before making the decision to leave. Oh, so many things sparked to life in my mind at that point. But I am a person who believes that if you're saying something that won't change the situation, then there's no real point in opening your mouth to waste breath. I know that many people will disagree with me, but I also think that I am not going to burn my bridges until I can afford to do so. So, that's the news as far as I'm concerned this week. I think it's pretty good. New job, new start. But now I need to expunge everything that has made me miserable. So that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the listen and I'll be back next week with more. Don't forget, the bookshop will be open again on Monday with a brand new episode. I really enjoyed the fan fiction universe focused novel and I hope you'll like what I have to say about it. If you like what you hear why not share it with your friends and family and please post a review or give me a star rating over on Podchaser. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Instagram at not before coffee podcast. Well, I can hear the alarm going telling me that my next pot of coffee is actually finished brewing. Yeah, it takes a while. So I am going to head out and get another cup. Until next time, this is me saying... Farewell.